Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Okay, joining me on Postcards from a Dying World is the co-author of The Living Dead, Daniel Krauss. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. It's exciting to have you here. Hey, thank you so much. All right, so we're going to get into generally like where you came from and how you got into things before we get into the book. Um, But you've been a horror fiction fan and a, a George Romero fan pretty much your whole life, right? Yeah, very early. Yeah, and uh, so what? And I, I remember. I think I read that Night of the Living Dead was your first horror movie or first movie that you remember watching. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, no doubt that I saw something before then. But the the first member, I first movie I remember watching is Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, it's the first one that stuck with me. And I was probably five or six years old. I was very young. <laughs> All right. So, but being that you're into not just filmmaking, but you've written several books, I'm sure you had writers that you grew up on um, besides the filmmakers. Who were some of the formative writers for you growing up? Well, I mean, to, to start with, and I'll cheat a little bit here, is what well, I really grew up on Night Living, two things uh, from a very young age, Night Living Dead and Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were both just always on Night Living Dead because of the copyright issue with it. So it was always on TV and Twilight Zone because uh, it was, you know, syndicated and my mom would watch it every Friday night or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I'd say the first writer in a way was Rod Serling um, and Tim Matheson and the people who really wrote a lot for that show. Um, but, when, but once we start talking about actual books, there's probably no one really until Stephen King, you know, maybe in fifth or sixth grade. Um, before that, uh, I was, you know, mostly like other kids. I was, I was always interested in horror stuff, but I was, you know, kind of wandering around. Um, and then in middle school, uh, Clive Barker was a big one for me. Uh, he kind of really blew my mind. Like he was the, he was the guy who opened up what was, what was possible. I mean, I think there's, there's something about Stephen King that's very approachable, mm-hmm. you know? I think that's what obviously why he's so popular. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a very small town, so it was it was very accessible. But Clive Barker was like opening up a window to an entirely different universe. Like his, his ideas were so wild and he was coming at them from a perspective that was nothing like mine. Uh, so were we talking late 80s, um, Clive Barker, like... Yeah, so let's see. Oh, definitely. Um, would have been, yeah, late 80s. Yeah, that, that's right. So I remember Books of Blood, yeah, Inhuman Condition, like a short story collections. Uh, my favorite novel of his, the one that really got me hooked was Weave World, um, Damnation Game, although I, I, had, I was a little young for that. I could barely follow it. Yeah, so I think um, you and I and Jeremy Robert Johnson are all in that sweet spot where as young kids, we were reading this stuff way ahead of time, way earlier than we should have. And, um, you know, judging from your shirt, I'm sure we were, we were all Fangoria kids 
and that that's that's a lot that's a lot of it we had a horror host i know you grew up in iowa correct right yeah so i'm midwestern too i'm from indiana and we had a horror host sammy terry who was our gateway and of course because of the copyright thing sammy terry showed um night of the living dead yearly um Mm -hmm. and uh so it was like one of those things that um it was formative for me too uh i i was definitely i think dawn of the dead was one of the early horror movies i rented on betamax so for me Mm -hmm. um the Romero zombie stuff was very formative as well. And uh, but we'll get back to that. But early in your career, I, um, you know, one of the first ones I remember noticing of your writings was uh, Monster Variations, which uh, is horror YA. And uh, you mm-hmm. kind of made your name writing these these young adult horror novels. Um, how did you get into, in, into that? And where did Monster var- Variations come from? I got into uh, it, it being uh, young adult literature, completely by accident. Um, I just wrote Monster Variations as a book. Um, and it was sort of my Ray Bradbury homage. I was going through a heavy Ray Bradbury phase. And um, and then when I got an agent, the agent was sort of like, um, I think we should sell this as young adult. Um, so I said, fine. And he did. And, um, and then kind of how publishing generally works, or at least in the, the, the big publishers, uh, often your editor will have a first look at your next book. And so that's why the next few books of mine were all young adult, is that I would write something. And certainly uh, for the next, I think, three or four young adult, three or four books I had, they all could have gone adult. They could have been published as an adult, as easily a young adult. But the characters were young which made them, uh, it made it possible to consider them as young adult if you wanted to. Um, in fact, one of my books, Scowler, uh, when I turned that into Random House, there was a lot of discussion about that, w- which way to publish it. Um, and they even talked about, at one point, publishing it as both, which was a crazy idea. Um, so, uh, but, but, you know, or, or I don't know, it never got that far. It was okay. decided early on that was a confusing <laughs> idea for everyone. Right. So anyway, uh, they my young editors just kept buying my book. I did keep, keep writing about young characters. Even in my adult stuff, I tend to write about young characters. So something about that that uh, is appealing to me. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, so yeah, that, that's where I got my start. Mm. Yeah, and um, you had uh, success with um, one of them. Rodders was nominated for the Stoker Award as well um was this was this the work that got the attention of Guillermo del Toro and got you in the troll hunter shape of water business or (laughs) yeah yeah my yeah so Rodgers was my second book and that was really the one that opened up all the doors Mm -hmm. um it was uh it was just a popular book with book people like a lot of uh editors those and other writers those type of people somehow found it so I was, uh, so I just met a lot of people very quickly all of a sudden who wanted to, uh, you know, work with me in various ways. So yeah, that, um, yeah, that did directly lead to me working with uh, Guillermo and Troll Hunters. Which uh, sounds like, uh, I mean, he's one of my favorite directors. So I, I can imagine 
working with Guillermo was, was, was an amazing experience um, with both with, well, and of course one that went on to win best pictures is pretty cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the experience of working with Guillermo and that collaboration and did that inform how you ended up collaborating with a mm -hmm. kind of invisible collaborator with George? Yeah. It's an interesting question. Um, yeah. I mean, I think he, you know, we worked on troll hunters first and um, so most people know that from the Netflix show, but it began as a novel. Um, and, you know, I, I did learn some things from him and the biggest, the biggest thing was really, I was at that stage coming off of Rodders and especially Scowler. Um, I was writing things that were very bleak, particularly Scowler, which is just really an intense book. Um, and uh, I think my life was sort of intense at that point. And um, then in came Guillermo and this other project which was, you know, I had to start dark elements, but it was so much lighter and so much more fun. And um, the kind of thing that I, I might've like had no interest in before, but, but it really opened my eyes to like the possibility of having like, optimism and how that can actually be an, an okay thing in fiction. And um, it, it, it really changed how I approach some things in my writing. Like I thought, all right, it's okay to give people hope and humor sometimes and all these other things that I had been really uh, pretty studiously avoiding. In mm -hmm. um, the process of Shape of Water was uh, different because that was an idea that began with me and then became uh, the screenplay and the novel and the movie. Um, uh, so that was a very different process and a, and a much stranger process as, like you said, the movie went on to great success and um, going to film festivals and the Oscars and all that stuff was certainly nothing that I ever expected it to do. Right. Now, did I hear you? Because I'm not sure that, did your project, did your work with Guillermo and Shape of Water precede the screenplay or... No, it's they're sort of simultaneous. Um, kind of like 2001. <laughs> exactly like 2001. Yeah, that's the only other um, uh, example that I feel is similar to it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing was based on an idea I had as a, a kid. Um, but And I'd always intended to write it as a novel, but it was always just, just kind of a little seed of an idea. I didn't have much around it. Um, and then I uh, told to Guillermo who loved it. And then he wrote the screenplay and we were gonna write the book. And then he, you know, we used his screenplay as sort of the structural element that we mainly based the book on. But meanwhile, I've been working on all these other ideas. So I was able to, to, to fill the book with those other things that I had been thinking about all these years. Um, and then they came out uh, very close to one another. Right. Well, and, and I think that a lot of people get the kind of impression that this was, was, was an idea that had been floating around Guillermo's head forever because of his love for the creature of the Black Lagoon, right? But Well, I think it's that's fair too, though. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the concept of the... Um, what comes from me is the concept of uh, uh, a creature from Black Lagoon type creature in a lab um, and then a janitor type person um, seeing the creature and, um, 
building some sort of affinity with it and then busting it out, putting it in her tub. But Guillermo, meanwhile, had been trying, for, I think, for years to come up with a, um, a story involving the creature uh, or, or a Black Lagoon type creature. Um, it had been circling around it for, for many years, I think. So it, I think I more or less provided the entry point, like a, a sort of back door way into the story that he hadn't considered. Mm -hmm. Oh, and um, by the way, um, I uh, think Bed Heavens, your, your book, Bed Heavens, looks amazing and that's on my list. I might have to have you back when, when, when I read that because um, that's, it's uh, one that I'm going to catch up to, but I think it's a really cool concept. Um, but yeah, so this, so I, I would imagine the, um, the working on um, the Shape of Water too and the notoriety that it got didn't hurt the process of getting the Living Dead as a gig. But you also had a personal connection going back to high school, which played a role in that too. So can you talk about when, how this project of the Living Dead kind of first percolated? Oh, you're talking about uh, Ramirez Manager, like that yeah. that type of angle? Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, to kind of go way back, um, <laughs> uh, I, I grew up in a small town in Iowa. And, um, you know, it's not a place that a lot of people come out of and become artists. Uh, or working, you know, full-time artist. It's, it's, that's pretty rare. Um, so I was, you know, I was just going about my life and um, writing and uh, maybe at this point, 12, 13 years ago, some, somewhere in there. Um, I was reading a, a, an article about George Romero because of course I was a huge fanatic and saw mentioned in the article that George Romero's manager was this guy, Chris, Rowe and I had gone to high school in that small little town with a guy named Chris Rowe. I thought, is there any chance this is the same guy? And uh, I looked into it and it was, and I contacted him and we reconnected. We didn't know each other well, mm -hmm. um, but he was, he was a little older than me. Um, and uh, he said, Hey, next time we're in town with, I'm in town with George. I live in Chicago. Um, let's all get together. And so I think later that year, they were in town for some uh, horror convention and we all, the three of us got together and it was great. And it was really the only time I met George. Um, and then that was kind of it. And then another decade passed. Um, and, you know, during that decade, uh, I just, I had some success, you know, I worked with Gamera a couple of times and published a bunch of my own books. And, um, and then George died in uh, summer of 2017. And about a month later is when I get this call out of the blue from Chris again, who I haven't, you know, really talked to in a decade. And it was, you know, it was him and his, and uh, George's wife, his widow. Um, and they had this partial manuscript that George had been working on for a long time. And they wanted to know if I um, was interested in trying to complete it. You know, one thing they knew about me personally was that I was a real student of Romero. Like I had been carefully, carefully reading his books, like holy texts, his books, his movies, like holy texts all of my life, and not just the zombie ones, but all of them. And then professionally, of course, I had done a couple of successful collaborations. So um, I think I was someone that they thought might be a good fit. Yeah, cer certainly. And one thing that I've, I haven't seen anyone ask you before, but I'm interested in is being that you had this great, two collaborations with 
another fantastic genre bending and defining horror writer. Did you at any point um, reach out to Guillermo for advice on on how to um, kind of translate a director's vision into hmm. in, in, into this you know doorstop with novel? No, I don't think I did, but I do remember. Um, at the Venice Film Festival, uh, having uh, dinner and sitting next to Guillermo and telling him about it. Um, like it's, it might've been something that I think it must've just happened. Um, and him being excited about it, but no, I don't think we ever spoke any, uh, in any deep way about it. Oh, that's cool. Well, you know, it, it is, I'm sure it's, it's exciting for him to know that somebody he's working with too is working on this type of project. I mean, Everybody wanted to see George's vision, um, you know, finished. And, yeah. um, you know, that's a very small fraternity, those masters of horror that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. And I feel lucky to know or have worked with a couple of them. Definitely. I mean, these are these are definitely my people. And Romero, of course, you know, he is the person for me, my favorite artist. Mm hmm. Well, so let's talk a little bit more about that before we get specifically into the book, um, because I think, you know, one thing that, um, you know, and a lot of the talk about this, nobody's really drilled down entirely on your feelings on now we have a completed filmography for George Romero and mm -hmm. you did a really good job of listing a lot of the projects that, you know, people like you and I who followed over the years, the starts and stops, things that didn't happen um you know for example the i don't know years and different variations of romero's version of the stand that we didn't get and almost got um but i'm wondering like what do you think are the most underrated of films in um romero's canon because to me for example like i personally believe like the dark half <laughs> for example is is one of his most assured films and 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 is one that's that that's really up there i'm just wondering if you have yeah yeah i do i mean i mean the sort of like reflex answer to this for most people is martin um but i think martin is generally considered to be um a fantastic film it's just so unavailable that people most people haven't seen it so you can't stream it or anything there hasn't been a dvd out of it in the u.s for I don't know, 15, 20 years. I mean, it's been a long, long time. But everyone who's seen it, though, kind of agrees that it's a, great, it's a great film. To me, his most underrated film is his last film, Survival of the Dead, um, which I really love. Uh, and uh, I'm sort of in the, the rare few, but I, I, just, I just can't get enough of that movie. I just find it um, extremely uh, thoughtful and subtle. And I think it's something that really rewards multiple viewings like it really creeps up like the first time i saw it I, I really liked it but it it took the second and third viewings for me to become a super fan of it um so yeah i would say survival of the dead is my first answer um season of the witch is really good um i think that's still fairly underseen um I don't think he made a bad movie, you know, whether you're talking Knight Riders or, or Monkey Shines um, or Diary of the Dead. I mean, I think they're all 
they're all good films. You know, the closest he came to making a bad movie, I think, was There's Always Vanilla, which isn't really a bad movie. It's just, it's, it's something is not completely firing on that one. Hmm. Well, um, for me, I, I think what's really too bad is that, um, you know, we did, George did spend a lot of years trying to get different films off that we never saw so it's like when you look at that list of, of things mm-hmm. that that were never made and specifically there were drafts and drafts of various versions of twilight of the dead and what became land of the dead and and i think i i would imagine that through were you given access to those drafts um when when uh putting this book together um i had access to some stuff yeah um i mean most interestingly i have seen his archives which will be public relatively soon at the university of pittsburgh acquired them um and they're all being currently cataloged so that i that's a thing that feels kind of exclusive right now but it won't be for long um and so i did get to see a lot of these drafts of these projects you know like like the stand and, and it and um and then of the I mean how many do I list on page six hundred thirty nine of this book I mean there must be fifty or sixty projects here that he developed or full on wrote and never got made. Well, uh, right, and if you look at the list for those of us who were following along through Fangoria at one time and then Ain't It Cool News mm-hmm. later, it's like if you look at the list. Let me see if I. You know, these are all ones that, you know, we as fans were like, you know, teased on or given that he was working on these. And so um, it is really interesting to consider like, you know, what could have been if uh, George had gotten more of the support from the studios, but then would it be, would it, you know, would the films be significantly different? Who knows, you know? Um, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great point. It's like a push and pull, you know? Like even like uh, um, The Dark Half, which I agree with you is a really good movie. Um, you know, that's one of his Hollywood movies and they they took it away from him. They redid the ending and they did a lot of stuff that he wasn't happy with. So some of these big projects on here, stuff like his War of the Worlds movie and The Mummy and Tarzan and all these things that, that he worked on for a long time. You know, you wonder, you know, he, he was at his best, I think, when he was working independently. So, um, and when he did those few films that he did make in the Hollywood system, uh, I don't think he had a very good time making them. They were filled with anguish for him. So it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I mean, it's, it certainly as a fan, it's intriguing to, to want to see him work on a bigger canvas that he never got to. But that's what the book is, you know? Yeah. I think he put a lot of his frustrations about the size of his the stories he was allowed to tell into this book. And this book was really an, uh, his chance to do an epic and there'd be no concerns about budget for once. Well, and, and those limitations sometimes provided or forced great creativity, especially yeah. people with Day of the Dead, which, you know, um, the isolation and the you know how how trapped everyone is 
um, in, in that underground bunker leads to so much of the dynamics of it that make it, you know, the movie that it is. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of us super fans have, have read the original Day of the Dead script, which was much bigger. But yeah, I wouldn't change Day of the Dead at all from what it is. I think it's, you know, of his, it's my favorite of his zombie films. Um, and I just love it. And I love the fact that we're squeezed down into these really unappealing, dark, fluorescent lit tunnels and everyone's just sort of exploding. It, you know, it really feels like uh, a pandemic situation where we're all stuck inside and having to deal with each other. Whereas Night of the Living Dead, it was more like we're all thrown inside but it's one night and we're, you know, tempers are rising. But once you get to, to dawn and even more like day, it's like the long haul. Like we are truly, you know, this isn't a one night stand anymore. This is a long, ugly marriage where we're stuck together in a, in a dark space and we're driving each other insane. Mm -hmm. And you did an interesting thing in the author's note at the end, which is you did the timeline and, you know, look, I have to admit, like, um, like I, I am a Romero fan to a degree, but I wouldn't say I'm a super fan. <laughs> you know, like, I know that Twilight of the Dead existed. I know that there was a bigger script for Day of the Dead, but I'm not the type of guy that would have chased it down because mm -hmm. uh, I'm more of a John Carpenter super fan <laughs> from that mm -hmm. era. But but I appreciate his work and 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 what he did. And I'm one of the people that's a I know um, Land of the Dead is a bit divisive, but um, I'm a defender of Land of the Dead myself. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the original four dead movies are the ones that I think um, capture the, the eras that they're made in more succinctly. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, now, granted, I've only seen Diary of the Dead and um, Survival of the Dead, the the one times that I saw them when they came out. So um, maybe there's deeper meaning that I didn't catch on to, but. You know, definitely die of the dead. Like he was, he was uh, 10 or 20 years ahead of his time with that one. Watch it now to blow your mind. Like he was so ahead of his time with how social media and uh, like viral video was going to affect us. It's amazing. Hmm. Okay. Well, now you told me that I need to go back and watch it. Cause I wasn't a huge fan of that one when it came out, but um and also because i i can't stand found found footage is just a, a personal thing i have to get over with that yeah it's, even though like for example europa report is a movie i really like but it's still found footage and i still have a hard time with it um but that's just me that's a personal thing um i get it but um so when um so you did you did dive into these older scripts I, i'm not familiar like how much bigger was that original Day of the Dead script? How much did he have to peel back there? A lot. It was, it was, it felt in some way, a lot, some of the stuff he repurposed for Land of the Dead. Mm -hmm. Like there was this kind of tiered society in Land of the Dead. It was, uh, you know, it was literalized in a, a high rise, really. Mm -hmm. So you had poor people living on the ground and the, the higher you went in the building, the richer they were. So it had some of that kind of elements. There was an underground bunker, but then there were these, uh, there was sort of a society on land. So it had that, that, that idea, but it was just bigger. It was, it was just involved, you know, kind of the idea of in some ways like zombie armies. Um, it just, it, it would involve 
would have involved a lot of people, you know, in, instead of the very few people that Dawn of the Dead involved. I'm sorry, the, the uh, film's Day of the Dead involved. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting too, because in, um, I think that it, it is natural the way it scales down from D- Dawn of the Dead, right? Because Dawn mm-hmm. of the Dead is in the timeline is still closer like maybe a week out and so like the whole consumer thing and the mall and all that makes sense that to then have like because one of the things that i always loved about day of the dead is the feeling that the world may be empty yeah it, it may be gone that was one of the things that as a kid really struck me is that like when they go to florida and they have that whole scene with the alligator and the you know like there's no one there and it, it, it could be already gone. And the idea that these last people in the bunker are some of the last people. Yeah. You know, that's truly frightening, you know. Just <laughs> well, I mean, you know, in the, in the author's note, as I think you mentioned, I, I figured out what is really the order of the films, which is not the order that they come out in, they, that they were released. And in, in that order, Land of the Dead happens before Day of the Dead. So Day of the Dead is the final film in the chronology. Even though there's six films, it's the final film. So it does, that's that's the, the feeling that you're certainly left with is mm-hmm. that now, is Underground that a, Bunker is the finale. Now, is that a chronology that you feel um, makes sense or is it one that George actually, like in his mind, he saw it that way? Well, I mean, he saw it that way. So I, I it has to... I have to make it make sense. Like right. that was the order, you know, some of the, it goes night diary, survival, dawn, land, day. So, uh, and those are all taken from pretty uh, definitive sources. They either say in the movie themselves when, it, when the, you know, this is two weeks after the zombie or this is two yeah. years after the zombies. Um, in, in at least one case, uh, I had to go to the screenplay to find out um dawn was the trickiest because they don't really say it um you get a sense of it because the 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 one-legged priest says something that gives you a sense that it's just been weeks um but in the novelization that um that romero co-wrote um he makes it much more specific so that that was helpful um and sometimes i wouldn't know until the commentary tracks romero would say this takes place about five years after or whatever. So eventually I was able to assemble the, t- the correct timeline. And that was important for figuring out a lot of the things in the book because I needed to figure out, put these movies in order and see what he was doing with them. What is the arc that is being built here? And so do you place this in the same Romero dead universe uh, or, or? Oh yeah. Okay. Definitely. Um, so if you wanted the full experience, this is what you should do. Watch Night, Diary, Survival, Dawn, Stop, Read. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Stop, read the book up through Act One. Uh, I'm trying to remember how this goes. <laughs> it's, it's not as complicated as I'm making it sound. Basically, I there's a there's a space in the book where I've allowed the movies to exist. 
the book has a very short act two. It's a three act book. And the beginning of act two is where all the movies would go. So if you wanted to make, to make it simpler, uh, read act one of the book, stop, watch all six movies in the order that I list them and then go back to acts two and three of the book. All right. So I'll probably pull that out as a clip <laughs> to yeah. make sure to give people the best instructions for, for reading. I mean, even I haven't done it that way. Um, I just know that that's the, the chronology. Next time I want to watch all the movies, which is going to be a while, um, I'm going to do it that way. <laughs> great, great. Well, and um, well, I, I feel too that for people who have seen the movies many, many, many times, like uh, um, it's a good, you're, you're going to feel connected to this universe. And like, there was no time at this that I didn't feel like and I guess this is one of the best compliments that I can give you is that I know George probably only wrote a third of this before mm -hmm. he passed, but it definitely felt I could feel the Romero kind of universe throughout the whole yeah. thing. And That's because oh, I think that's partly due to the fact that um, the stuff that he wrote isn't limited to the first third. Mm -hmm. You know, it, his stuff is placed all throughout the book, including mm -hmm. the very end. Um, and then he, of course, left some notes too. So there was this, it wasn't, it would have been a lot easier if he had just written part of the book and stopped and I wrote the rest of it. That would have been much simpler. Um, but that's not how it was. The material, once we gathered it, was was dotted throughout the plot of the book, which forced me, in a good way, to always have to return to the next spot on the on the timeline that he had kind of laid out. Okay, so we'll we'll get into all the nuts and bolts. We're going to put it up on the lift. Um, and get into spoilers now. Is there anything else you want to say to people who might be pausing it and coming back after reading it? Like last pitch to say, um, this is why you should, you know, read this book. Well, I mean, for Romero fans, it, it sort of ends the story. I mean, that would be the, the, um, the only pitch I would need. I mean, this is, it does present a uh, you know a vision of George's of how he is going to reboot the story the same as he did in Diary of the Dead start from day one and um, take it through the end you know the movies only ever went five years out this book goes 15 and and does kind of end it so if you want to see that and who wouldn't I mean this is a 50-year saga that began in 1968 so um yeah, I mean, it's that's my pitch. Okay, now I would say too that I, I've always said that it's a lot like, I, I'm very annoyed by Star Trek fans who get very upset about, and I'm a big Star Trek fan, that why don't the Klingons' heads all look the same from one, from one show to the other? And it's like, I'm always, you know, in your mind, you have to update the technology when you watch the original series. You just have to. And I think with the Romero films too, to think of them all as one timeline, don't think about, you know, don't focus so much on the 70s stuff when you're watching Dawn of the Dead. Don't focus so much. Yeah. Um, you yeah, know. you have to. That's what Romero yeah. did. He ignored the decade shifts. You know, Night of the Living Dead takes place in 1968. Um, Dawn of the Dead doesn't come out to 1979, but it's just a couple weeks later. Mm -hmm. So you just have to ignore the decade shifts, which is an interesting thing that I've never seen in another series. 
but um, it allowed him to comment on it. But there is a there is a chronological timeline. You just have to ignore kind of chronological reality in a way. Yeah, you you need to give yourself up to the story, which which is actually the way you have to take every story if you really think about it. And um, I also think it's kind of crucial and important for 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 this novel too to kind of uh, set yourself in the mindset that you're. Um, that those films are are kind of informing the universe in which mm-hmm. you're, when you're reading the book and that's the best way to read it in my opinion um yeah as somebody who just spent the last week reading it um, <laughs> and the funny thing is i'm a very fast reader and it still took it still took, yeah it's a, it's a long book it still took me a week but um i enjoyed uh every bit of it so um all right so let's get we're now in spoilers um so let's talk about the writing process so you did touch a little bit on this but um and you you lay this all out great in the author's notes but i think to kind of discuss it is 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 a little something else that's interesting for readers or or for other writers i don't think many writers are going to get into this exact situation however it is yeah it is fascinating how you did this so you had provided about one third of what you needed for the book, although it wasn't front loaded, it was stuff that was mostly in the back end. So we're gonna assume now that people listening this far have read it. And so I'm wondering, was this the Canadian parts? Was this the 15 years later that he had focused a lot of his energy on writing? When um, it Again, it, it was spread out. There was a big chunk of it at the beginning um, that deals with, um, primarily dealt with the characters in the uh, morgue and the um, characters aboard the uh, aircraft carrier and then um, the TV studio. Um, But then there were other elements that we eventually roped in that uh, were were not located anywhere specific, Um, but with with some differences like it, we did have a cue to how it should end like a pretty strong cue of of the last few pages of the book yeah um, and um we'll get to to the ending in a yeah. but now i'm interested in did he have an actual outline that he was working for like even an act structure or any of that um it was i wouldn't call it i mean certainly it wouldn't rate next to what I consider an outline because my outlines are extremely thorough. Mm-hmm. He had, uh, you have to think about it as he had parts of a manuscript um, that were missing a lot of connective tissue. And then he had some notes. And these notes were not, uh, these notes were casual. You know, it, they mostly came in the form of a letter or a, just a document that was, I don't remember how many pages, 13 pages, something like that where he just sort of in a paragraph style, just sort of says where he's going with some of the characters and saying, this is where this plot will go. This is where this, this these two characters are gonna do this and this and this. Um, and so uh, we had all of these elements and some of them were completely disconnected. Like he had written this short story that I kind of rediscovered um, that uh, had only ever been published on his short lived website in the, around the year 2000. So there are other elements that were completely external to this novel that we got permission to incorporate into it. So there were, there were elements that, that were awesome and fit 
but didn't have a particular place. Mm -hmm. So they had to be worked on and massaged. And there were, there were definitely parts where I had to figure out how to mesh all this stuff together. That was the biggest challenge and occasionally juggle things like, can this character be that character? Can these two people be the same character or can this action that, that he had assigned to this character, I don't see how that's going to work. Can we reassign that action to a character 300 pages down the line? Because I didn't want to, I, I desperately didn't want to get rid of the stuff he had written. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of cases where I had to, but I wanted to, I tried my hardest to save every bit of prose that I could. And so I would, I would move it around and be creative when I needed to. And that must have been like putting a puzzle together. And Oh yeah. I, I would think that that was a kind of unique, fun thing to do as a writer to like, yeah. Try and plot something that was already kind of desperate. And, and yeah, I mean, George probably had a plan for it, but you had to guess, right? And you had yep. to, yeah. Yeah, but I had a lot of, but I, my guesses were all very informed, you know? Like in, in the author's note, I go into detail about how I came to the decisions and the choices that I made so that, you know, I'm pretty transparent about it. So if someone disagrees, they can, they can at least see my reasoning for why I decided. And a lot of that had to do with just studying George as a person and figuring out what you know, I'm wondering about some some nuts and bolts nitty gritty is was he was he typing handwriting? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was typing. Uh, depending on the age of the work, um, it was most of it was computer. Um, I, there's, I feel like there was at least some element that was typed, like a typewriter. You know, Clive um, Barker still to this day handwrites everything. Yeah, that's around. amazing. You know, no, no handwriting here though. Yeah. Okay. Because I know he's kind of a Luddite to a degree, so I didn't know he was. He, he was, but he seemed to, you know, take to working on a, to writing on a computer. Uh, he was okay with that. It was more the, the technology of connectivity that, that he was against. Right, right. Well, yeah, and, but I think it's a fair question because like then, because it would have been more complicated for you if you didn't have for example, a Word document that you were working from. And just on a nuts and bolts level, like, did you have a document that was like kind of locked in stone? Did you have to retype things? Did you? Well, you know, I had, mostly I had like PDFs of things um, that I then had to very roughly use software to, to transfer to Word. Um mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are programs that do this, but I just use like free programs. So they transferred horribly. Um, so I'd have to go through and do tons of little fixes, but everything was uh, edited too, though. So it's, yeah, and- you know, to make our styles mesh, I had to go through all of his work and make minor edits and all of his sentences too. So that there was, I could create a style that was the Krauss and Ramiro style. Yeah. Which must have just, I'm sure the first time you said that to yourself or thought that had that thought, like, wow, this is, (laughs) this is pretty. Yeah, it was, it's a heady thought, but there was so much work to be done that I just like, you just focused really hard and just tried not to think of the, the, the wildness of what was happening. Yeah. And I did listen to your, your interview with Brian Keene and, and, um, so I did kind of hear some of this, but 
the the archaeology that you had to do to find the these these things that were on the website in the early 2000s because it wasn't just like oh it's safe you know i can just google it you had mm -hmm. it's on websites that don't exist anymore yeah and he didn't have that in his files which is interesting um you know so you had to and that was like almost 100 pages correct yeah there was a I use the uh, Wayback Machine on the internet to to find bits of his old site that you know hasn't existed for twenty years or something. And on that site, there was evidence that he was sending out um, bits of uh, a story, a longer zombie story. But you had to like send in two bucks or something like that. He'd email it to you. So the actual story wasn't there but there was evidence that it existed so then i you know got got with his wife and we tried to figure out who would have who might have those bits of story so it, there was definitely a indiana jones element to, to digging up all the artifacts right um so the structure of the novel is really interesting just as like let's forget the who wrote when where let's just look at it as a finished work for a second um, it reminded me a little bit of my favorite science fiction novel of the 20th century is John Brunner's Stand on Zanzibar. I'm not sure if you're... Hmm. No, I'm not. Okay, yeah. So the structure of this book kind of reminded me a little bit of Stand on Zanzibar because what Stand on Zanzibar does is it that's a doorstop novel too. Um, uh -huh. And it was written in 1969 about overpopulation. And John Brunner's inspiration was in the 30s, there was this trilogy of books called the USA Trilogy by John Don Passos. And it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, and apparently it was like, like the literary novel of the 30s. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've heard of the author, definitely. Yeah, yeah, right. And so it's funny because I kept thinking about that lineage because what you have with the USA Trilogy and Stand on Zanzibar is you have all these different characters that are showcasing world building for an entire mm -hmm. universe and showing the entire world building and they all seem desperate. They're all, they don't seem connected. And for hundreds of pages, these characters are on their own track. Right. And unlike Stand on Zanzibar, they don't come together quite as well. So in the first half, I was thinking, oh, this is kind of Stand on Zanzibar, but the characters do come together. Was that, um, do you, George, had created some of these characters that are yes. on their own, but he always had the intention of bringing them together, correct? That was the indication I got from his notes. Um, it wasn't, I didn't have confirmation that it was, I knew some of the characters, but I didn't know all the characters that he was gonna have meet up. So some of that was up to me. Um, but yeah, that was, that seemed to be the structure he was lying out in the book, like really focused on uh, a set of characters for a while and then to another set of characters for a while. Um, and that's how the book plays out. It's almost like a, some novellas almost like there's almost like a hundred pages of this, these set and then a hundred pages of another set. And you introduce four of those sets before starting to get to the point where they're meeting each other. Right. Well, it's funny um, because uh, when I made the stand on Zanzibar comparison to a friend who was also reading the book this last week, um, it was funny because he said the same thing too. And I said, well, I don't, and, and now that I know that 
you have read it. I, will, I do wonder if George had read Stand on Zanzibar. Because What's, who, who's the author of it? Um, John Bruner. And it was the Hugo award-winning novel of 1969. So it was well-known. And um, it, it's a novel about overpopulation. And uh, But one thing that's really interesting about Stand on Zanzibar is it predicts school shootings. Oh, interesting. And, and mass shootings because it, it kind of, there's a, one of the kind of novellas in the middle of it is kind of talks about this idea. And um, so it's funny because I do think, and I bring up Stan and Zanzibar for a specific reason, because there were two or three times, and I, I'm assuming now that they must have been um, George parts, but there was at least one and I, I dog-eared it, but I'm not sure which one it was. But there was one time where I raised my eyebrow and thought, huh. I thought, oh, I think George Red stand on Sansibar. Well, I would be, I'd be curious to know what, what part. You can tell me later. Yeah, um, it, it's one of the scenes with the, um, it's the, it's with Luis and um, mm-hmm. Charlie early on because there's. Um, the whole idea of the, the shotgun marriage, there is, there's a, there's a scene in San Zanzibar where characters get isolated, right? And this later informs things that are going on later in Living Dead. And this same trick was used in San Zanzibar. So that's, that section is probably mostly me though. Okay, um, so that because- might've been an accident. Yeah, I think that might be an accident. Uh, what's interesting about that section is some of it is taken from George's life. Uh, sort of a hallmark of some of the stuff that I wrote in the book mm-hmm. was kind of um, referencing and honoring, hopefully, uh, just George as a person. Mm-hmm. And um, and that section, once I found out that Louise was a pet name of um, his wife when he when George was being troublesome he, she would call him Luis and then I kind of realized oh Luis is sort of the George character here and mm-hmm. Charlie's sort of like his wife and and that actually changed how I wrote that section how I approached it knowing about their life and how he died and all that sort of thing let me make that connection a little bit more clear even though it's more I think an accident because there's a part that you wrote but in Sands and Zanzibar there's characters early in the book that remind me of Luis and Charlie in the sense that they don't, their story seems minuscule in the beginning, mm-hmm. but they're very connected to a lot of the events that kick off the whole thing. That's yeah. the, that's the comparison that I saw to stand on Zanzibar. Now yeah. that thread with Luis and Charlie um, is my favorite part of the book. And I don't um, know I would say the shotgun marriage and the scene with the finger being bit off Mm -hmm. and all that, um, which by the way, takes place in San Diego where I live. Very nice. um, It's funny, my uh, co-author on a project I'm working on, he's from La Mesa and I, and he was re- he gave me this really weird look when because he asked me how the book was and I said, well, my favorite chapter takes place in La Mesa. <laughs> from La Mesa. Yeah, I mean George, I don't know why he said it there, but he did. Well, I think I know why he did because I I had to explain this and I think it's because he had to have the aircraft carrier off the mm. coast of where 
where they were. It seems like that's why he would do that. Yeah, that that makes some sense. Yeah, and um, and I'm just speaking to somebody in San Diego who knows the Navy is huge here. Yeah, um, yeah, interesting. So I think that's why he did it. But that whole scene with the marriage and 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 the finger bite, mm-hmm. bite out the finger and the delay and uh, the the bag over the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To me, that was the most powerful and most effective chapter in the book for me it was the one that yeah was the hardest it's for me too i mean I, that's a chapter that i wrote um so i'm saying this about myself but i do think it's uh uh the kind of the most crushing uh bit of the book i think it's kind of surprising and, and really heartbreaking well and speaking of somebody who has also written a zombie novel too and you know um and you know knows that that it's hard to come up with original things at this point that haven't been done and there's a couple of those in here and one of the most original to me was the whole idea that lewis suggests to her the bag over the head so he doesn't so she doesn't have to look at him Mm -hmm. when he when she ends his life is that was particularly heartbreaking yeah it's sad it's really sad and I know I, I posted this on Facebook because I read that that chapter on election night uh, when everyone was agonizing over <laughs> what the final count would be. Yeah. Close to, I said, okay, well, one thing that helped me was I read this heartbreaking chapter oh. <laughs> you know, uh, on this night and it distracted me for a while because I, I, and then I did have the thought to myself, well, it could be worse, right? Yeah, <laughs> it could be. <laughs> right. And uh, so I did have that going on. But um, so, yeah, so that storyline, too. And I do think that the Olympia storyline with the aircraft carrier was why he, he he set them off the coast of San Diego. And yeah, that's really that's really interesting, because if the book the book doesn't go that way, but it could have, you know, that that aircraft carrier, I think, was bound for San Diego. So that's that's a great point. Well, but they jacked out and they had the whole action scene which was incredible by the way um and also that sounds like that was a george thing the idea of like wouldn't it be crazy to have a pilot go zombie while we're in the air yep that was george yeah yeah and that sounds like uh man i wish i never had the budget to do this oh yeah and then he lands and there's alligators (laughs) i mean it's uh yeah he was full-on going crazy with some of that stuff yeah and so that seemed like a fun thing but um but I do think that um, they give gave them some symmetry, and maybe I'm just reading into that because I live in San Diego. But I think the symmetry of them being off the coast, and then the first John Doe being here, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to take a little bit that's to say, hey, we San Diego, we started it all. You did. Uh, Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. And I, so tell me about writing that chapter because that had to be interesting because we've never seen in all the Romero universe, we've never seen Ground Zero. Right, so that you had to feel some responsibility there. So the uh, chapter in the in the morgue. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean that was really pretty strongly laid out by George. Like that, you know, there, there was you know plenty that I filled in and expanded on, um, but all the all the plot beats of that one were, were from George. Uh, so yeah, it was it was interesting to see where he if he's going to have a patient zero zombie person, like where's he going to put that and he, who is going to be there to witness it. And it is interesting I, I, to see, all right, he's going to put it in a morgue in San Diego. 
And I can't pretend to know exactly why. Um, but I, but he did have the, what, what we do know is he, he wanted certain people there to witness it. And he wanted um, a Latino character named Luis and he wanted his, his assistant, uh, Charlene, um, who have kind of an attraction, but it, it's, it's kind of one way from, from Charlene in a way. Um, and he had them, you know, he wanted them to react in a certain way towards the zombie that once the whole project was taken in consideration did make me think certain things about it. Like late in the book, Charlie's ponders on the, the idea of what if we had reacted to that first zombie differently? Like what if we hadn't reacted to it out of uh, anger? Like what if this were like the test, the test balloon, you know, like the, the alien ship that comes to check out and make sure the humans are uh, peaceful. You know, and what we did was we immediately tried to to beat it and destroy it, and maybe we maybe that set off the whole thing. Maybe we're partly to blame. Well, and Charlie's journey becomes one of the most interesting as a character from from beginning to end to once once we we get to Canada. But we'll we'll talk about Canada a little bit more um, coming up. But the Olympia storyline. Um, so that was George storyline that, that did originate with him. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And the aircraft carrier, but did the, the whole, um, the story with the pastor and the, mm-hmm. the was, was that there? The- no. Um, the pastor was me. Uh, and that was one of the, the parts where I was taking control of uh, issues that I thought were important to, to George um, certain things about how he felt about a religion. Um, and, you know, and a lot of this stuff is less difficult than it seems. Like I wasn't, it, George and I are so close in how we think about things. And maybe it's because he was someone I'd been following since I was five years old. So a lot of his beliefs have become my beliefs. Uh, so there are parts in the book where I'm, you know, where there were gaps where I would look at, George and his and his work and his life and his beliefs and and try to use those gaps productively to to bring up issues that he might have had he been around and and yeah because she or that character he reminded me a little bit of uh like Mrs. Carmody from The Mist or you know where like yeah yeah right and um in in a great way (laughs) yeah and uh and surprising too. And like one of the things I liked about his character is that when he's first introduced the pastor, like I didn't see that coming from him. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think there's a tendency for some people to like, if the, if they're going to end up twirling their mustache, they have to yeah. twirl their mustache from the beginning. Right. Right. It, it, and what I appreciated about what you did with that character was that, that um, I got, some sympathy for him early on so when when things kind of went crazy i kind of you know it's like the difference of of between the shining the movie and the shining the book like one of the Mm -hmm. reasons why i'm i'm a book guy and not a Mm -hmm. movie guy is that jack torrance is crazy from the first scene of the movie and i would never hire him to go to the overlook yeah but in the book i feel bad for him and I'm like mm-hmm. don't do it don't do it you know and I think what I liked about father it was Bill right father Bill 
yeah. Um, or Pat, yeah. What I liked about him was that, like, it was more like Jack Torrance in the book, you know, where mm-hmm. I, I I saw it coming, but I'm like, God, dude, don't do it, don't do yeah. it. Well, that's something that was very evident in his pages, like the parts of his writing that he was really, but the parts where I could tell he was really excited were not the zombie parts. They were the parts where he was talking about characters and in particular talking about um, sort of the, the bad sides of good characters. Like he was seemed to be very interested and very dedicated to making co- complicated characters that we wouldn't necessarily always know how to feel about. And that's something that um, I'm kind of obsessed with in my own writing. So I into that and yeah, yeah. Father Bill is certainly an example of that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and and I thought that he added a lot of strength to to that part. Um, dealing with the animals, um, mm-hmm. like, and I know Keen did it a little bit, or did it in the Rising. So we've seen zombie animals a little bit. I still haven't read the Rising. I get it recommended to me like weekly. <laughs> well, it's funny. I haven't read the Rising since it came out. Like, I get two. I get two recommendations constantly: the Rising and the Reapers were the angels. I think it's called. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's another um, zombie book. And I get those two recommendations all the time. I need to buckle down and read them. <laughs> right. Well, um, I think The Rising is the first time that I saw zombie animals. And um, one of the funny things, too, is that if you follow Keen's work, is that um, his sequel to The Rising and, and Land of the Dead kind of came out at the same time. Yeah, I, I remember hearing that on this podcast, I think. Yeah, and they have very similar, like, kind of directions where they were thinking on the same thing. But Brian is a devotee of of George as much you know, as anybody. Yeah. So it, it's natural that he would have, like, a similar track. Um, but uh, Yeah, I, I had to try to really careful with the animal thing because it, that, although I showed, I dug up tons of evidence that I think that's where George was headed next, he had never touched on it in any of his movies that he actually made. Well, and I liked the character that had the suit set up with um, specifically spikes on on her boots, specifically mm-hmm. uh, for zombie rats. was 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 an interesting little detail of world building. And um, you know, without- yeah, she would she would put spikes on her uh, the table that she slept on, so they couldn't climb up the table legs at night. Yeah, that's that's interesting too because we have a, a mouse in our house right now that keeps climbing up to eat tomatoes. Oh no! <laughs> and uh, but we're animal people, so uh, we're not that concerned about it. But um, I'm good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and and so I think once that I, I think there's a line later on in the book that was really great where um, one of the characters said, "I I hope we get dogs back. I really missed dogs." Oh yeah, yeah, which was was a really um, was a line that really struck with me. Um, and this idea that one of the things that they lost in this world was this kinship and this connection with dogs. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you're mentioning all the things that really stick with me. I think that scene with Louise and Charlie, we mentioned, and then there's part where the animals start, start turning. And there's a line that's something like, uh, losing dogs felt like losing the war, you know, where it's just like they had these loyal friends and protectors who were with them. And then suddenly, they had to they had to kill them 
they, they couldn't trust them, you know, like if they were to die or get hurt, you know, they would have a, a zombie dog on their hands. So, um, that, yeah, that's, that's, that for some reason, you know, anything involved, violence or anything involving dogs always seems to cut to the heart. Right. And, and that's, um, I think that seeing that's one of the reasons why that part of the story like worked really, really well. Um, and I, I do think um, when we're, once we get to, so then once we get to Canada and we get to the 11 years after, what were your main concerns with the world building of doing the, the, that last act? Right. So once I had kind of gamed out the arc of zombies, which again had to do with arranging the original zombie movies and then playing it out, just playing out the numbers, like there, there was going to come up, up time by my calculations about 15 years where zombies would have nothing, there would be no zombies being created anymore. Like the few people that were left would have um, rules in place where if someone died, they'd immediately, you know, damage their brains. They couldn't come back. So zombies would have, there would be no zombies being created and the zombies have nothing really more to eat. And the zombies themselves would start to die out. They would just start to rot, fall down you know, turn back into the soil. So what became critical to me there is we had seen many times uh, Romero's visions of a dystopia, you know, like we saw how he saw the world falling apart. But that sort of begs the question of what then was his vision of utopia? Like if we know, we know, boy, do we ever know all the things that he saw that were negative in the world that would lead to its collapse. But What's the opposite of that? What was his solution? He never got to show us, but I pulled together what I know of him and his work and his thoughts and combined it with my own and said, all right, so if we had a chance to start over and this book says we do, because the zombies are dying out, what is, and we have a chance here to, to restart humanity and create a utopia. What would that look like? And so that was a big thought process of just figuring out what does the Romero Kraus utopia look like? Who, who finds, who founds it? How does it function? What's, what's our best shot at doing this right next time? Now, and a lot of what you were saying was George's intention in doing this was that he wanted to have his final say. He wanted to end this story that he had started 50 years earlier. And do you think the end was this period where you know and charlie i think is the key one because it correct me if i'm wrong but she she goes to the hospice which was a great scene because she she thinks she's bit or she's bit and she goes to the hospice which is this great idea that there's this place where they let people quietly go zombie or or, or whatever die and because they might transform or whatever and then she thinks she's a goner, but it just doesn't happen. Is that, mm -hmm. is that the end you think that George was looking towards is like a time where this is just over now. We're just. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, and the author note lays this out, but I, it's, it's a possibility. Yeah. I think it's uh, at the end of the day, it's my interpretation of where he was going, but um, I think it's a valid interpretation that I, I back up as best as I can. Um, we, I, we definitely know that he was open 
you know, to it ending well and to, for people being able to, to, to escape the plague and the plague somehow becoming, somehow ending. Although again, I, I shouldn't use the word plague because really I, he saw it more of as an uprising, a sort of good thing in a way, a, a cleansing of the earth rather than a, a plague. Um, so yeah, I, did, I do think that's kind of where he was heading. And then more specifically, the final chapter in the book is, is really right from George. Like that's, that's really how he wanted the book the end, to end. Um, uh, we'll get to oh, yeah. that, but there was yeah, a yeah. line on page 517 and I dog-eared it and, and wrote in pencil <laughs> on it. And, um, and, the, and it goes, uh, people, zombies, we're all dying, he said gently. Here's what we need to accept. We're smart zombies as much as they are dumb humans. Any second now, those two lines are going to converge and us and them will be exactly the same, body and soul together. I can feel it. The chief can feel it. All Slowtown can feel it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great line to pull out. I think that's, that's a lot of the thesis right there. The idea that um, zombies and people are sort of two two halves of the same thing and one you know one element got out of control the humans and the zombies were sent to sort of right the scales um and then at some point though and this happens about 15 years out uh there's going to be a point where the the zombies have done their job and the people have course corrected just enough that uh there's going to be a moment of, of reckoning you know and then the test becomes how do we treat the zombies at that point? You know, once we have managed to tip the scales just enough. So now that we're 50, it's like the Congress, you know, now that we've got 51% control, are we going to, to steamroll the 49% or are we going to work with them? Right. And um, I feel good about that because I, I haven't posted my review, but I've written most of it. And that, um, that, quote that i just read is kind of the thesis of my review mm -hmm. yeah no that's that's great i hadn't no one's pointed that out, that passage out before but it's kind of the almost the critical passage now is that I mean, it's, it's as close as it gets to laying it all out in do you think that was a front was that a george george line or did you write that no this passage is mine um this is me getting as explicit with the idea behind the book um as i get i think and with some time to go uh because it's, it's a 517 so mm -hmm. that that's interesting and so let's let's talk about that that ending a little bit and that um you said the i know in the author notes you said the last three words were entirely george's so mm -hmm. um but it didn't come specifically from 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 uh, his attempt at this novel, right? It came no. from a different source? It came from uh, a very, very old source. So basically, um, I mean, if you're deep into Romero, you know this, but it's a pretty obscure fact that his original zombie trilogy, Night, Dawn, Day, was sketched out by him before he even made Night. And it was, he essentially wrote this short story. It was not a short story that he ever published or anything like that. And it's been lost to time. But he would speak about it in interviews, how he wrote the short story as a young man that was about kind of an uprising, but where one element of society 
uh, in three different chapters overtakes another. And he, he, in an interview, I finally found an interview where he says what the last three words of that story were. And so sort of in honor of that, um, I made that the last three words of this story. But, but the whole last scene was also George and it was part of the fiction, the literature that he wrote that we used for this book. And he did want it to end where it ended and with the characters that are in that final scene. Right, and, and the line specifically is, uh, for now the dead sink, for now the dead die, for now the dead win. Right. Yeah, so you're gonna have to wrestle with that one a little bit because it seems counterintuitive. They're sinking, they're dying, but they're winning. Like, what does that mean? Um, and that's, that's uh, purposely a little bit tricky. Um, right, the idea is, is that they're, the dead, are disappearing from this world because mm -hmm. we're getting past it, but they win in the sense that they have remade the world. They, you know, and, and look, mm -hmm. we saw a little bit about this early in the, um, you know, in the lockdowns for, for COVID, um, you know, my wife and I constantly remarked about how it was so much better for the planet that we got oh, yeah. month to stop. Yep. And no air traffic, no, you know, just that the pollution was stopping the, you know, and all those things. And, and so I thought a lot about that with, with this, with this ending, because it, with this line that the dead win. And, and yeah. And, and that's a great thing. That's a great fact to point out because then that really more than almost than anything that's happened in 2020 that reflects from this book. It's, it's that to me, you know, like there's a, there's a huge thread of this book that is really about, you know, how humanity has destroyed the planet and these zombies are here to, you know, we're, we're the plague destroying the planet and the, the zombies are here to act as the antibodies. Well, George always saw the dead as, as representing the working class. And that is very clear and especially Dawn of the Dead more than, than any other one that, you know, the anti-consumerism and, and that kind of thing. And, and, and so we, um, Look, and I did it on a very minor scale, and 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 I don't want I don't mean to promote my own work, but I did a a zombie novel uh, ten years ago, a satire called "The Vegan Revolution with Zombies." It's my, it was the, my first book with Eraserhead Press, and and um, in my book, it was um, the Romero movies were uh, a reference point. You know, the characters mm -hmm. refer to them, and there's direct analogies to um and part of the joke is because it takes place in portland and you know the characters haul up in the vegan mini mall <laughs> right which is kind of a, a joke and reference to don yeah and i had lots of and it's funny because my book um if you know vegan culture there's parts that will work for you that right. you know romero there's parts that will work for you and if you know Portland, there's parts that will work for you. But the funny thing is, is like, I think I'm the only person in the world that gets all of it. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that happens. Yeah. And, um, but one of the funny things too, is that I had to wrestle with this a little bit too, is the idea that, you know, um, I, I was writing where the Romero movies existed as movies, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And you had to write this where um, 
the zombie culture didn't mm-hmm. exist, right? So, so you had to make some specific decisions in, in relation to that. But I think most importantly here, and what I'm getting at, and I'm talking a lot, I'm sorry, but I'm trying to get to the point of what I think was so crucial about the ending of this book is, is that you, you are finally answering so many questions. It's like there's six movies of questions mm-hmm, yeah. and the final act here, you, you are providing the answer that George was meaning to write. So that's, how yeah. Done, right. Yeah. For, for at least through my interpretive lens. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But you got the the seal of approval from the Romero family, so mm-hmm. I'm assuming his wife. You had to yeah. speak with her about mm-hmm. the last act. I'm sure. And what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all legit. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I'm, I guess I'm just feeling <laughs> humble. But yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Take a victory lap here, because um, look, you know, I. I'm not the super fan that you are. I, I, I am a more casual Romero fan, although, um, you know, I definitely have seen Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead enough times that I can say the lines of the movie as they're mm-hmm. happening. I can do that with the original three trilogy. I, I was, you know, there first day for Land of the Dead and I definitely, you know, I, you know, I have love for what George did. So, I am one of those people that was rooting for you and wanted you to succeed with ending the story. And I would say, from my perspective, you nailed it. And I'm not saying this just because, you know, and I know you said you had the tough job because if, if you succeed, then everyone's going to say that a boy, George. And if you (laughs) fail, they're going to, they're going to come with pitchforks for you. Right. And, um, but I, as a writer, know the tasks that you had to do and the pressure that you had. And so, and I really appreciate um, specifically as much as my favorite parts of the book were, were, were early, like the Louise storyline was my favorite. I -hmm. appreciate the challenge and what you had to do with, 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 the utopia at the end. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So, and I would say, um, so the last thing that I would I, I would want to say, well, and I will make it, I will point out something that specifically for me as a San Diegan, um, there's a, a line on page 270 that I cannot, I cannot not mention. Uh-oh. Which is um, uh, Louise opens his Twitter, his heavily filtered profile pic of him flashing curly whites at the last Pride Parade, which, by the way, San Diego has a great Pride uh, weekend and is well known for that. Um, trying too hard not to read his too hard the bio, San Diego assistant medical examiner slash. Um, um, artist slash still liking the Chargers. Um, there are very few people who still like the Chargers in San Diego. I just have to say, I am. Well, that's why he had to put it in there. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's being proud about it. He's like, I still like them, although most of you don't. 
Right, which was funny because um, I very specifically, um, I was one of the activists that fought to keep the team here. Yeah. Um, I actually am the, the co-founder of Save Our Bolts and, oh. and militantly anti-Spanos and anti-Chargers. So there, I will admit that when I read that line, <laughs> I, I went, yeah. uh, when I saw that, but um, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad that there are still people like that because there are a few who stuck yes. with Chargers. All right. I understood. Point taken, but that's good world building. So as a writer, I can't I can't argue with with a very specific piece of world building where you yeah. have <laughs> at Pride and still yeah. making the Chargers is good San Diego world building. So, thank you, thank you. So I, I I both love and hate that part. All right, good enough. <laughs> so um um so we're almost done. But I just, you know, to 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 wrap things up on, on a spoiler level, what was the hardest challenge for you to meld the the stuff that was already written with the stuff that you had to create? Uh, I think on a real sort of two answers, but on a on a technical level, the um, the Navy stuff, the the aircraft carrier was the most difficult because George had clearly done a bunch of research. Um, but I didn't have any of that research. I, I don't know what he was, I don't know what his research documents were. We didn't have them. And I didn't know anything about aircraft carriers, the Navy. I didn't know, I didn't know anything. So, and that, that section is very tech heavy, um, very specific, um, filled with detail. And I wanted to be able to continue with that detail. So I had to spend just a lot, lot of time researching aircraft carriers, which is, I mean, there's, it's not like you're researching a boat, you're searching a city. I mean, there's a million things going on inside an aircraft carrier. It's a floating city. So that was difficult. And then probably the other big difficulty was really um, in just how I didn't want to cut anything. Um, and that was more of a, a less, far less technical and more emotional, right? Just didn't want to lose his, we had such a, a finite amount of his work that I, it felt precious. And I, and it was difficult for me to cut things. So I worked so hard trying to find new ways to use bits. Um, but there, you know, there, there were at least a couple sequences that I did have to cut and that, that hurt, but I couldn't get around it. Right, well, and I appreciate the work that you did um, on, on this. And um, I, I, I imagine you approached this with a lot of I can't imagine you could not approach this without with the equal amounts of fear and excitement. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, and you knew that this, I mean, you're closing the, the book on, <clears throat> you know, a story that started with the first movie that you ever seen. <laughs> yeah, I know it's wild. It is, is uh, a unique experience for somebody. And so I'm sure reflecting back on that at the end, like had to be, it's yeah, it's beyond belief. I still, I still can't really believe it. It right. feels like the closing of a circle. You know, it feels like in a way I, I can die happy now. Like I've, I've closed a giant life circle of my own. Yeah. Well, uh, we want more Daniel Krauss books, so don't do that. Okay. Don't <laughs> worry. I have many more coming up. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, what's, what's interesting too, and, and then, and kind of, I wish I'd done this before spoilers, but um, 
I'm not a huge fan of The Walking Dead, and mm-hmm. um, I'm guilty because I I, I wrote a zombie novel a, a while ago, but I'm one of those people that's like enough already, um, you know, for, for, for the most part. And uh, But there was never any doubt that I was going to read this because of specifically what it was. But what would you say to the to the idea of, well, I guess we've already answered this a bunch. We've already, we, the, the difference here is, and the reason why this exists is because it is closing the circle yeah. that's specifically George. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way you do. Like I, I'm not a huge Walk Dead fan. I, I think I watched maybe two seasons of it. Um, and uh, there's, I had no intent in ever writing a zombie novel. You know, there's just yeah. so much out there. The only zombie novel I would have considered writing is this one, and that this was a you know, ridiculous idea that I would ever get to. Um, so yeah, this is, and you know, of course, Romero, who started the whole thing, he had no interest in doing what you need to do today to write a zombie novel, which is create some new spin on it. Like, you know, zombies can fly now or, you know, whatever. You're going to come up with some crazy new, new wrinkle. You know, he invented these damn things. He was going to tell his story straightforward and just with more heart and depth than anyone else. And so he wasn't going to, expand the idea in some wild new way he was just gonna tell it better than anyone right and 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 in my own defense you know oh, sure it makes sense right in my own defense because i'm the same way you know like what happened with me was that my editor or one of my editors uh carlton mellick um the third um the author of the haunted vagina uh <laughs> But uh, Carlton being, you know, he basically called me up and he said, zombie books sell, vegan books sell, you're a vegan horror writer. He's like, Interesting. you know, I, I want you to do this. And then at first I told him, I think it's a terrible idea. And then he said, well, we'll give you four other books. Well, that's <laughs> a good deal. Write this one. <laughs> and then yeah. I was like, okay, give me two weeks to come up with something. And basically what I, my situation, what happened was that I was sitting in the horror section and I heard two teenage young ladies talking about Pride and Prejudice with zombies and it made me mad. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, how can I make fun of this? And so the main character of my book is a editor of, the, of a with zombies line. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, when it all happens and uh so i got a chance to make fun of some of this too yeah you Uh, yeah you went you went total meta yeah yes exactly and um but but what i appreciate here is that you um you know you know you're in the same but i was the same thing like walking dead i couldn't make it past two seasons i did like the first season of fear of the walking dead because it was right at the beginning and i thought they did some interesting things with la but for the most part like i i'm over I'm over zombies and this book worked for me because mm-hmm. I think, and I know you wrote <laughs> a good chunk of this, but I, as I said early on, I think that it, it feels like it's closing the circle for Romero. And, yeah, totally. Um, and so, and I also don't generally like doorstop books anymore, like 700 page books that usually turn me off because I, I, I'm always saying like, in my head, I'm always thinking, well, here's the 100 pages that could have been cut, or here's the 200 mm-hmm. pages that could have gone. And I never felt that way reading this because I felt like um, 
it was doing a, it was doing its job. So um, so I want to commend you on that as well. And um, my review will be coming out soon. But I I and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you too specifically. I, I know there's interviews out there with you, but I wanted to I, I wanted to drill down on those things that are in your author notes. So no, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, and, and so so last thing I would say is um, is um, tell us you know how working on this project has influenced what what you have going on in the uh, in the future and what is that that you have going on in the future? Boy, that's that's how has it influenced me? I mean it 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 does feel like in a way a weird weight is off, you know, because it was something where although I didn't, you know, never knew that I was going to be involved with something like this. Uh, it does feel like it's some sort of life goal that's, that's vanished now and in a good way. And I can, I can see it and look at it and say, there was something productive that I did that didn't really, you know, has to do with me, but was really about honoring this person who meant so much to me. It was a, kind of a father figure to me. Um, as far as what I've got coming out, it's the usual mix of everything. I just put out a, a book for middle, middle grade kids called They Threw Us Away, which is sort of a watership down with, with teddy bears, but it's very, very dark. And I've got a comic book coming out right now called The Autumnal. It's an adult horror comic. Um, and then a bunch of stuff that's not announced yet, but should be soon. Right, cool. Well, we'll make sure that uh, everyone's following that. Um, I, I, Daniel, I really appreciate taking the deep dive on, on this book. Um, I know this was a labor of love and it shows on the page. And, um, you know, I, what's funny is this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment, but thank you for not breathing new life into the zombie yeah. genre. <laughs> That was kind of the intent. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you understand. Thank you. Yeah, um, because um, thank you for um, making me feel like I was um, in George's hands for, yeah. for, a good, for a good portion of this. Because, and the good thing is, is that there's no point where I'm sitting there saying, oh yeah, that's definitely Daniel's parts and mm -hmm. that's definitely George's parts. You know, like I'm not, you know, there's no point where kind of a, I felt that when I read the author's notes, there were certain things that I thought were George's that were kind of confirmed, like, because I, I did feel like he was wanting to have fun with the, I don't have a budget, so oh, yeah. I can go, go wild with this. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we definitely, uh, and it's funny that you said you had to to cut a few of those parts too, because <laughs> they yeah. just didn't work, but they were, he was yeah. having fun writing. Something. Yeah. I'll leave it to uh, listeners to um, read the author's note, but there's, there's one totally bonkers sequence that I couldn't make fit, but it is wild. Right. And that had to hurt, but. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping somehow it can be shared with the world at some point in some other form. Right. All right. Well, um, uh, I really appreciate uh, you giving us the time uh, today to, uh, because I, I do think, you know, next time, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody will finish a Wes Craven novel at some point. Uh -huh. Like, oh, now I, now I can use this interview to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows? I know Wes Craven wrote a novel, so maybe there's another one out there. <laughs> right. Um, 
maybe there's a um, uh, an un or half written um, prequel to Hills Have Eyes. Who knows? Can, can uh, you know finally finish? But uh, wouldn't that be interesting? But uh, but yeah, I I, uh, I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much.